0: Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, if you're visiting. We're glad that you're with us. Thanks for being with us this Sunday morning. We're in a series on the book of Mark, looking at Mark chapters uh, 1 through 9. This morning we're in Mark chapter 6. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 30. So if you uh, happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 841 of that Bible. Week in, week out, as we go through the book of Mark and look at what Mark has to tell us about who Jesus is, we see. We are seeing as we go through the series that Jesus is the king who has come. And so week in, week out, we're talking more and more about what does it mean that this king has come and what are the implications for us. So to Mark, we turn again this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll dive right in. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, this morning and pray that you would meet us here in your word, for it is your word speaking to us. Um, Would you show us today the goodness and beauty of who Jesus is? Would you mercifully show us our own hearts? Would you draw us to you? Father, we come and ask this uh, not in our own power. Under our own power we would run from holiness like this, from beauty like this. But instead we come and ask uh, in the name of Jesus who has come that we might be reconciled to you. You pour out your spirit on us that we might hear you speak. Lord, we ask for that today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good, for his glory. There's a lot going on in this passage, and we're not going to try to cover it all. There are three fairly disparate events that happen here, yet are are tied together. Um, And and what I want us to look at this morning is just one of uh, the clearest and most obvious truths in the Bible, but, it, but it's one that bears repeating for us this morning. And it's simply this, that many people will reject Jesus, the true king. Many people will reject him. Now, if you've been with us through the book of John, Jesus told us as much when he, when he told his first parable, the, the parable of the sower. He talks about this sower goes out and sows the seed of the word, and some people hear it and their lives bear fruit, but, but many others will hear it and uh, bear no fruit. The, the, the seed gets choked out, it gets trampled on the path, and nothing happens. He was saying that this was going to be true of his ministry, that some would hear and believe and grow to life, and many others would reject him. Uh, We've seen it in Mark as uh, the religious leaders have begun to plot against Jesus for his downfall and ultimate death. Uh, We we saw it just last a couple weeks ago in in chapter 5 when Jesus comes and he heals this demoniac who is inhabited by all these demons. He frees him and the man wants to follow Jesus, but everyone else in town pleads with Jesus to leave, to go away. Because they reject him. And we see it here uh, front and center in our passage this morning, people taking offense at Jesus, stumbling over Jesus, and ultimately rejecting Jesus, because we see this morning at the heart of all of this rejection and turning away is unbelief unbelief okay that that 's the great enemy at work here now <clears throat> the Bible talks uh, about unbelief and doubt in a, in a variety of ways, and I want to make a, I want to distinguish something here I mean the the, the Bible sees a place for us to come to God honestly with our doubts and our struggles, to come and ask our questions, and God can certainly handle those. He can certainly see us through as we wrestle with them. Um, some of us wrestle very acutely with those. There is a beautiful verse, Jude 22, that says this. As Jude speaks to God's people, he says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on them they struggle. But what we see at work here uh, is is another flavor of that. It's it's not just simply the doubt and the questioning that people are wrestling through. It is is what becomes a hardened unbelief, a turning away from Jesus and all that he stands for. And Mark is reminding us that this is an incredible danger and it leads to the rejection of Jesus. Reminds us that there is ultimately no sitting on the fence with jesus no neutral ground at the end of the day there are two options that we either accept jesus as in he is and who he is and follow him or we turn away from him and reject him those are really the only two options at the end of the day so we're going to see this kind of unbelief and the power of it in this passage first we're going to see this unbelief playing out in a rejection of the person of the king the person of the king. Secondly, we're going to see this unbelief playing out in a rejection of the centrality of Jesus the king. And then finally, we're going to see that we, in following Jesus, are called to follow a rejected king. Okay, this rejection that we see here. First, this uh, rejection of the person of the king. We see this in the first six verses as Jesus comes and preaches in his hometown as he comes back to Nazareth. So if you notice, when he comes into town, The people there acknowledge that something amazing has been happening in Jesus' ministry. I mean, they make reference uh, to the amazing things that he's done, to his unbelievable wisdom, to his mighty works. They see that something genuine and real is happening, but but they, they stumble. They are caught up short because, I mean, after all, this is Jesus. The kid who grew up over here, the kid who was the carpenter's son. They see all this, but they stumble because they, they think that they know Jesus. They know his family. Like They point out here as he's in the synagogue, like, look, we, your brothers live right here. You grew up here. Your sisters live here. Jesus, in, uh, in this town of Nazareth, at this time, archaeologists tell us it would have been about 500 people. This is a small town, and everybody knows each other. And there is Jesus speaking in, in, uh, in the synagogue and teaching them. They know his family. They know where he comes from. Uh, There's this one comment that kind of slides past us. You notice it says that there's Jesus, the son of Mary. Well, remember, Jesus lives in a very patriarchal society where people's lineage is marked through the Father. And so when they say Jesus, the son of Mary, may well be uh, giving him an underhand cut because, you know, Mary, remember the one who got pregnant before she got married and went away and then came back to town and had a baby? Here's Jesus, that oldest son, who knows who his daddy really is, right? The son of Mary. He's the one that's standing up and preaching to us. They would not forget his questionable parentage. And the response in verse 3, is: it says they take offense at him. Uh, The Greek word here is the one we get our word scandalized from. They were scandalized by him because they were so familiar with him. And they thought that they knew him. He was their hometown boy. Where I grew up, they would have said it this way. You know, that boy Jesus, he's just gotten a little too big for his britches. You know? He goes off, comes back, and who does he think he is teaching in the synagogue? They hear him speaking and they know it's not just a local boy that's done well. We read in other places in the New Testament that when Jesus would speak in the synagogue, in one instance, they, they, people marvel because they say, it's not like the other guys that just get up and tell us about the Bible. He preaches as one who has real authority. There's something different about him. And these people turn around and go, wait a minute, that's Jesus. What's going on here? And they end up ultimately rejecting him because they're so familiar. They think they know who he is and they don't. Jesus responds to this in verse 5. He says, tells what was kind of a, um, an everyday uh, kind of wisdom saying when he says this. He says, look, only in his own hometown is a prophet rejected. In other words, those outside who don't think they already know him can see more of who He really is than those who are in His own town. They make assumptions about Him and they end up rejecting Him. They've domesticated Him. They don't see Him for who He really is. And do we also maybe domesticate Jesus? Or we may be in some sense standing so close or think we are that we can't see Him for who He really is. Or we may be in a similar boat to the folks that grew up in His hometown Uh, For some of us, maybe it means that that you, uh, growing up at some point, you just became fed up as you looked around and saw what you took to be just the incredible, and maybe rightly so, the incredible hypocrisy of the people around you in your church. Here are all these people that claim to know God, and then look at how they lived their life, and you walked away, and maybe you're back in this room this morning because you're taking another chance of maybe it could possibly be different. Maybe this picture of the familiar Jesus I had wasn't maybe the right one after all. Or, you know, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're a student here. Maybe you're one of our college students and you grew up going to church and it's the good thing to do so you keep on going when you go off to college so that when mom calls you can say, yes, mom, I was in church. And, you know, this Jesus you've known so long, thought you knew so well, maybe he's making no dent in life for you. Maybe you're not seeing him clearly enough. Maybe you're a middle school student or a high school student, and you're at that point in life where uh, you are here in church every Sunday morning because your parents have said you will come to church this morning. And maybe you don't even object. Maybe it's just so much a part of in your blood of of what you do. And do you realize that there's going to come a point at some point for you where you are going to have to put your own stake in the ground And you're going to have to decide, am I really going to follow Jesus because He is my God and Lord? Or am I simply doing this because He is the familiar part of my childhood that I grew up with and around? Because you see, He comes that we might know Him and call on His name. Are we standing too close to see that real call on our lives? Maybe you're here in town uh, and, and you're retired. And you come to Williamsburg at the end of a career and at the end of raising family. And you come and your expectations are, you know, I've always gone to church. It's been a comfortable part of my life, so I'm, I will continue to do that. And I've uh, always been a part of knowing church people, so I'll continue to do that. And you'll follow Jesus and go to church and play golf and play bridge and read the paper over a good cup of coffee. All part of this dream of domestic tranquility and well-deserved rest at this time in your life is it all becomes so familiar and comfortable. Maybe we're standing too close and not hearing the call of God in our lives. If you find following Jesus hard to own, hard to step into, hard to give yourself to, is it possible that you've been standing so close for so long but never really seen Him as He is? Uh, The writer Annie Dillard wrote this in one of her books. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? On the whole, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. What's she saying? What do we think we're doing here? Playing nice? Playing religious? Are coming before Jesus and God Himself, the real God, who comes to really grab hold of our real lives. You see, if we don't get that, then we're not actually hearing what the Bible tells us about this Jesus who comes and casts out legions of demons to set people free. And this Jesus who comes and steps into the middle of a hurricane and says a word, and everything is still. This Jesus who comes and speaks into the lives of the chronically ill, healing them with as much effort as it takes us to slap on a band-aid, making them whole and new. This same Jesus who steps onto the scene preaching this, repent and believe. Have we been standing too close, too familiar, to hear the real power and challenge behind those words? Or to put it differently, are we yawning at Jesus if we are, we're not seeing him for who he is. You see, here we see people wrestling with their own unbelief as they reject him because he is too familiar. But we also see another kind of unbelief and rejecting here that happens from rejecting not the person of the king, but the centrality of the king. Uh, Verses 14 through 29. This is the story about... uh, John the Baptist and his run in with Herod Antipas, who was the head of this part of Galilee. He was known as a tetrarch. He was one of the Roman rulers. He was a son of the king Herod the Great. And now his lesser son has one small lesser part of the kingdom, but he will rule that kingdom, that piece of his kingdom, with all that he's got. He takes uh, John, John the Baptist, who we first see at the beginning of the gospel, stepping onto the scene in preparation for Jesus' ministry, saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of God has come. He comes preaching repentance and baptism. And people come to him and say, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, there is one coming after me, the thongs of his sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. And he points to Jesus. And when he sees Jesus come to him to be baptized, he points at him and looks and says, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, this John who's in prison under Herod's thumb is the very John who came to proclaim the coming of Jesus. And so so though we see Herod wrestling with John, we need to see that at a deeper level, Herod is wrestling with Jesus because he is wrestling with the one who came to preach about Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point to his kingdom. John comes in the midst of his preaching and preaches against Herod and says, look, you have... Unlawfully married your sister's wife. You are in the wrong. You are running away from God. And what does Herod do? He imprisons John. So you can imagine his wife Herodias is not a big fan of the preaching of John, uh, who is uh, pointing at them, condemning them for what they've done. But you see, Herod, Herod at this point in time is caught in this uh, sort of unique and what turns out to be temporary moment, where on the one hand, he's got John preaching against him in public about what he has done, and he imprisons him. But at the same time, he's weirdly fascinated by John as well. We see this over in verse 20. He looks at John, he says that he knows that he is a righteous and holy man. It says that he listens to him gladly, but he's greatly perplexed. Who is this man telling me that I've done wrong and that he speaks for God and he's intrigued by it? And he's content to live in this limbo until his hand is finally forced. He throws this birthday party for himself, has all his most important guests there, and Herodias, his wife, sees her chance. Her daughter comes in and dances for Herod and the guests. Everyone is so amazed at the beauty of her dance. He exclaims as reward. He says, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. She says, just a moment. She goes and talks to Mom, asking for the head of John the Baptist. She comes back and asks, and John is suddenly at the moment of crisis and decision for him. What is he going to do? On the one hand, he would look and see John, a righteous and holy man. On the other hand, he looks around and he sees the eyes of everyone at that party. What's he going to do? Is he going to give her what she's asked for? Is he going to go back on his word? Is he going to lose faith in other words what what is John going to or excuse me what is Herod going to love most in that moment Is he going to turn towards and love the call of God on his life as it's brought to him by John is he going to listen Or is he going to warm himself somewhere else Is he going to love something else more deeply Is he going to look to something else to make him whole like the approval of the people around him like his tenuous grasp on power Like his desire to appear as one of incredible influence and power. What's he going to do? He chooses the thing that he loves most. And he has John beheaded. This. it's one of those stories when you're reading to your kids, you're thinking, I hope this one's not in the children's Bible. <laughs> Turn the page and it's not. I, Camper shared the story with me when he was growing up. It was in his, and it had a picture, and it was his favorite picture in the whole Bible of John's head on a platter. <clears throat> but it does stand as that vivid picture of a terrible choice, terribly made It's the kind of thing that Jesus pointed to. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, whatever it is that you treasure most, whatever it is that you are living for, whatever it is, regardless of what you say to your friends or say to your parents or say on a Sunday morning, whatever it is that is actually the thing that is giving you life, your treasure, your heart will be there. And we always follow our hearts. We will always choose in line with the thing that we love most. And we see Herod do that as he has the choice. He chooses the thing that he loves most the approval of those around him, his hold on power. And he turns away from the real king, he rejects the call of the king in his life. Is Jesus the king central in our lives? Is He what we really look to? Is He the thing that we are really centering ourselves on? Is He the thing that really stands in the middle of our world and we relate it all to Him? Is He the one who's the center of the wheel and all the spokes radiate out from there? Is our life been built around Jesus? Our career, our relationships, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our free time, everything, does it come back to... The centrality of our relationship with God and our worship of Him, is that the thing that is central place? Or are we warming ourselves somewhere else for honest with ourselves? Is there something else in our lives that trumps God's call in our life, something that we think offers us life that's deeper and richer than what it would mean to take God at His word and follow Him? Are we really focusing and centering on Him? Or are we merely nice people? You know, just the nice folks that you love to live next door to. They don't make too much noise at night. Pleasant, socially acceptable, kind when needed. But you know what it's like to be, as I certainly do, to be merely a nice person. What happens? Everything's nice and fine until sooner or later someone, you, someone around you, finds the button and hits it and all the niceness evaporates and falls away right somebody pushes that you've seen this uh, if, if you have children we've seen this some with some of our kids when they seem like such obedient Mild mannered children. And then you ask him to do this, and everything falls apart. And you have this realization they're not obedient at all. They're just easygoing until we finally ask them to do the thing they didn't really want to do, and all the true colors come out. My kids are like that. So's their dad. <laughs> and so are we all. Are we going to be merely nice people? Or are we going to let the king have the central place in our lives? Because as we walk down the road of unbelief and are hardened more and more, we turn from Jesus, the person of the king, and the centrality of the king in our lives. But finally, the thing we see here in this passage is that those of us following Jesus means that this rejected king we're talking about, that we follow him, that rejected king. That's the kind of king that we follow. We we see this in a couple places, but right in the middle there is verses 7 through 12. When Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to go and to preach, He's sending them out to do exactly what they've been doing with Him. You've seen me preach. You've seen me heal. I'm sending you out into the villages that you might go do the same and come back and tell me how it goes. He sends them out two by two. He sends them out with just enough to make it to town and they're going to have to rely on the hospitality and God's provision to take care of them. He sends them out. He says, go heal and preach. And then he says this to him. If you go into a town and they will not receive you, if you are rejected, then when you leave, dust uh, the very dust of the ground off the soles of your feet as you leave. And that was a sign of judgment and warning. Good and faithful Jews, when they left, uh, when they left Palestine, the promised land, and went in Gentile areas, when they came back into their homeland, they would wipe the dust off their feet from those pagan Gentile lands before they step back onto God's land. And here Jesus is saying, when you go into a village here uh, in God's place among God's people, if they reject you, then treat them exactly as you would anybody on the outside. He says it is a it is a um, a message of judgment against them because he's saying this is this is for keeps. And he says to them. In other words, you at times will be rejected. Jesus is basically saying, I guarantee it for you. Just as I have been rejected, you will be rejected as well. And then we see in the story of Herod and John a picture of what that rejection can really look like. Last week, we talked about a literary technique that Mark uses called the Markin' Sandwich, where he'll start telling one story, then he'll tell another one, and then he'll come back to the first story. And the effect is to focus us into the middle story that ties everything together. Well, here we see Jesus sending out the twelve disciples, talking to them about the fact that they, at times, will be rejected, Then in verse 30, we have, it's just one verse, but we see the disciples coming back to him to report about what's happened in their ministry. And smack dab in the middle is this story of John the Baptist, this forerunner of God's kingdom, being rejected. And being arrested unjustly. And being cruelly and unjustly put to death. And Mark wants us to know that if we, like these disciples like John the Baptist, are going to follow this rejected king, there will be times and ways in which we too will be rejected just like our master. One of the uh, commentators puts it this way, John's martyrdom exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world of greed, decadence, power, and wealth. Mark sandwiches the brutal and moving account of the martyrdom of the Baptist between the sending of the Twelve and their return in order to impress upon his readers the cost of discipleship. See, he says that if we are going to follow him, then we are following a rejected king. And this is just one of those sobering truths that we would miss an enormous part of following Jesus if we never talked about things like this. That following Jesus means going where He goes and He went to the cross. And Jesus calls His disciples to follow after Him, to go in His way, and that means that often we are going to face very real rejection too, and maybe even death. It might just come in the form of uh, the cold shoulder being turned out of a circle of friends, being turned down for a job, being turned down for who knows what, or much, much worse. It's happened before. It happened to Jesus. It happened to His friends and followers. And it's happened throughout the history of the church. You know, some people stumbled and fell because they were too close to Jesus. And others stumbled and fell because they didn't want to follow in the way of Jesus. Is this going to be the point for some of us where we stumble and fall? I didn't get into it for this. Not death. Not death to my desires, not death to my own dreams for the future, not death to every shiny thing I've hoped for myself. Not a death that would cause me to cast myself in Jesus and trust Him, come what may, no matter what. But he says that's what he calls his disciples, he calls us to. How are we going to do that? How are we going to follow like that? How are we going to follow if Jesus leads there? John chapter 6, there's a crucial moment in the ministry of Jesus where Jesus has been preaching to the crowds very hard words. And people began to leave. The crowd just begins to peel away. Okay, this isn't the miracles I was looking for. This isn't the teaching I was looking for. This is getting hard and I'm out of here. Jesus kind of looks around. He looks at his closest disciples. He says, what are you going to do? you going to leave too? Simon Peter speaks for them. He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter doesn't say, look, Jesus, we've got it figured out. It's okay. He just looks around and says, where else are we going to go? These words are just as hard for us as they are for the crowd, but we know that this is the only place where we will find life. So, Jesus, we are staying here. As Peter and the other disciples came to learn as they followed this rejected Jesus, it would take them a long, long way, all the way to the foot of a cross, to dreams crushed and torn apart, to a couple of very lonely, dejected, despairing days. But on the other side of that, to something that they had not dared dream and hope of, that he would come back, that he would be raised from the dead, that this story that ended so tragically would suddenly be flipped around, the world would go upside down, and suddenly they would see that victory had come out of death, their victory for us through Jesus. So following this rejected king means just as we follow him in his rejection, it means we also follow him and go where he goes. And the story ends this way, in resurrection, in life, and things put back together again. But again and again, we're reminded in Scripture that we live in the middle of the story. And we're going to get glimpses of that. But that won't be all that we see. And if our hope is on resurrection now, we will always be disappointed. Resurrection comes in Jesus' timing when all will be made whole and all will be healed. But right now in the middle of the race, we follow a rejected king. How are we going to handle that? How are we going to respond? Are we going to be offended and scandalized? Matthew 11, Jesus says this, using the same word of scandalized, blessed is the one who, Who is not offended by me, who is not scandalized by me. In other words, blessed is the one who sticks here and does not run and trusts me. Now, the story ended up or began in a pretty disappointing day of ministry. He goes to his own hometown, utterly rejected by those who've known him all his life and rejected by his family as we come to the end of the gospel and into the rest of the new testament we see that that's not the way it ended for all of them because we see mary the mother of jesus standing at the foot of the cross as jesus is crucified she has come to have faith in her son in the book of acts we see james one of the brothers listed here who has turned his back on his unbelief has turned his back on his familiarity with big brother jesus Come to see him for who he really is, his Lord and Savior, and come to faith, became one of the leaders of the early church, and gave faithful testimony to Jesus until the day he was martyred for his faith. We see, even here from the hometown, seeds that will one day spring to life as Jesus, this rejected king, is yet the same king who comes and brings life to all who will hear and all who will listen. Will we hear? And will we listen? And will we follow? Let's pray. Father, we do pray as we come that you would open our eyes, unplug our ears, wipe the sleep out of our vision that we might see you clearly, and that we might respond in faith. Father, if we are too close and too familiar, help us take a step back that we might see the enormity of the one that we think we know but don't know yet. If we are offended by your call on us, and we see that only there is life, and may we turn towards you. Father, may we faithfully follow you in the midst of brokenness and rejection, as we follow you, the rejected King, remembering that that's not the end of the story, that the rejected King is our resurrected King. So we look to you. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.